Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1953, a man named Charles Wilson found himself giving very tense testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee. Wilson had been nominated by President Eisenhower to be Secretary of Defense, which should have been routine enough, except there was something about his resume that seemed, to some, a little suspect. And it was this. At the time that he was nominated, he was the CEO of General Motors. Beyond that, to the dismay of some on the committee, he owned 39,477 shares of GM stock. One senator pressed Wilson on this, wanting to know if he had to make a decision which could hurt GM or its stock price, could he make that decision? What Wilson said back to the senator has been quoted and misquoted ever since he said it. He said he could not imagine such a conflict of interest, quote, because for years I thought what was good for our country was good for General Motors and vice versa. You know, in the 50s, 60s, even 70s, you had CEOs who were largely took themselves seriously as statesmen. And most of them were men at the time, uh, statespeople. Robert Atkinson is the president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, a nonpartisan think tank. He's worked with both the George W. Bush and Obama administrations. As representatives, not just of their company, but as Americans, as helping out the country. And there was seen as an alignment between the interests of corporations and the country. Atkinson argues that alignment has largely unaligned, at least in the minds of many Americans. You often hear important politicians say things like this. We've got to make sure we are not the party of big business, big banks, big Wall Street bailouts, big corporate loopholes, big anything. Probably wouldn't surprise you if I told you that was Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Only I wouldn't tell you that because it wasn't. It was former Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal, a dedicated conservative. But both might agree, big is not better. A lot of conservatives, particularly nowadays, as opposed to, say, pre-1994 conservatives who were more aligned in the notion of country club Republicans, more aligned with seeing that big corporations were a force for uh, progress in American greatness. They're more uh, economic libertarians, sort of in the Adam Smith kind of world, where in, in their view, the optimal economy is made up of small little businesses where there's no profit, uh, you know, very low profits, very low market power, and and they don't need government for anything and they don't lobby government for anything. Mm. And so you can have small government, small firms, and just sort of like the some of the founders, not all of them, like Jefferson, uh, thought was the ideal. So for mm. them, it's sort of this utopian ideal, uh, which is uh, unrealistic, of course. For the, some on the left, particularly the progressive left, um, their view of, is, is that large corporations are the capitalists. They're the ones making all the money. Uh, uh, and, and we have to segment out small business as part of the proletariat, if you will. And so it's now small business gets to be seen as kind of just like workers. They're also victimized and oppressed by the large corporate community. And, and therefore, we should demonize and, and work against big corporations. That's largely how it plays out. The bottom line is lots of people are in agreement about the harm big businesses do to America. And we've talked with a lot of people on this show about some of those adverse effects. From David Wessel at the Brookings Institution. There are fewer employers and the big employers dominate. And there is a growing body of evidence that this is reducing wages. To Elizabeth Hinton at Harvard. So when people who are incarcerated call home, um, spending like $8 for a minute to talk to their family. So it's a very exploitive and extractive industry. To Robert Lustig at the University of California, San Francisco. 
They make money by using commodity crops that are subsidized in order to make processed food, which is killing us. The problem, according to Robert Atkinson, is that the story of big business is a little bit more complicated. He says the data shows that, on average, large companies are quite good for America. And in the age of huge mergers, consider the green light that AT&T and Time Warner recently got from the courts, America is often very good for big business. Which brings us back to Charles Wilson, the CEO of GM, telling senators, hey, don't worry, what's good for the country is good for GM and vice versa. That wasn't seen as anomalous at the time, and now it would be. So the corporate community has a lot to explain, if you will. You know, They could have done a better job of keeping up their reputation. Having said that, there's still a lot of really good things companies do on average that we shouldn't lose sight of. Atkinson writes about those things in the new book, Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business. And he says that he and his co-author, Michael Lind, have watched anger against big companies grow over the past few years. Though it's crucial to say up front, he doesn't argue that big companies are saints. He thinks they've become too beholden to the Wall Street establishment. They've embraced short-termism, and they've catered to a customer base that wants everything to be cheaper, which tends to push jobs overseas. But even so, at the end of the day, you've got to go back to the actual data and ask, what do the numbers show? How do big companies really stack up? How are these companies doing in terms of paying wages or or exporting or or protecting their workers or giving their workers benefits? Uh, And it turns out when you look at all of these factors, as we do in the book, on average, large companies significantly outperform small companies when it comes to improving the quality of life. They spend more money on environmental protection. They export more. They're more innovative. They, they injure their workers less. They hire more women and minorities and veterans. Uh, so the, the narrative is really completely opposite of, of what the reality is. And so that inspired us to write the book. Hmm. At what point, by the way, does a small company cross into becoming a big company? How big do they have to be? Well, it's kind of strange. We have we have this small business bureaucracy. So we have a we have an entire government agency designed to help small business called right. the Small Business Administration. Right. We we quote a scholar in our book. You you can really see how tilted this is because you can't imagine a, a U.S. government agency called the Large Business a- Agency. <laughs> it wouldn't <laughs> Just, be popular, I think. It uh, wouldn't when be you try popular. To establish it. Right, the LBA, uh, but the under the SBA rules to qualify for all of these perks that that you qualify for if you're small, like government loans or government, for, you know, subsidized contracts and things like that. They have different definitions. So, like like uranium mines are bigger than say uh, car dealers, but on average, it's a generally 500 workers. Okay. So if you employ more than 500, you're seen as big, and less you're seen as small. Um, You know, you talked about that hypothetical large business administration, um, even though obviously we do have a small business administration. But doesn't that make sense? I mean, like small business, your local pizza parlor or ice cream shop, they don't have the wherewithal to have like the lobbyists and the accountants and the lawyers that that an ExxonMobil would have. So it seems like, of course, they need the extra help. Well, so there's a difference between 
it, well, there's two things. One is they actually do have lobbyists. They're called groups like the NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Business, an incredibly powerful lobby in Washington. And one of the reasons mm -hmm. they're powerful, first of all, they have a lot of money. But the other reason they're powerful is they have members in every single congressional district, lots and lots of members. And so, you know, what does a member of Congress worry about when they're taking a tough vote or, 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 or you know, taking any other kind of action. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things they worry about, sure, is campaign contributions. But a much bigger thing they worry about are, you know, are am I going to get votes at home? And so if they cross the NFIB or other sorts of small business lobbies like the National Association of Realtors or the Beer Wholesalers or all these groups, you know, they know that they're going to have grassroots opposition in, in the next November election. So that's that's one point. Mm -hmm. The second point is it would be fine if, if SBA, uh, the Small Business Administration, just said, we want to make sure that when you pass a federal regulation that it doesn't unfairly target small companies. Okay, I would be okay with that. That's actually not the case. Like, for example, the SBA regulation exemption that we cite in the book about how if you're a small aircraft repair company, you're exempted from some of the regulations that mm -hmm. a large aircraft repair company would. Some. So we're saying that Aircraft safety of the consumers, of the flyers, is less important than helping some small little repair company. So, sure, the regulations should be equal. They shouldn't certainly, we, Mike and I argue in the book, we're not against small business. We're just saying let's have size neutrality. Hmm. So uh, let me back up for a second because you talked about how, like, on almost every measure that, you know, people might think about wages and productivity and environmental protection and exporting and innovation and all these things, employment diversity, um, large businesses outperform small businesses. And I, I think a lot of people would hear that and think, that's crazy, isn't it? Large businesses that have been contributing to inequality and hiring lobbyists and paying people as little as possible and sort of thinking about the next quarter on Wall Street instead of really like long-term thinking that will help all their workers. I can just imagine that's what people are thinking. What's your response to that? Well... We make it pretty clear in the book, we're, this is not a defense of, of all corporations, nor is it a defense of sort of how the big business community in the United States has conducted itself in the last 20 years. But that doesn't mean that when you, again, look at the data, um, you know, for, for example, if you're a worker in a large company, you, you get 85% more bonuses, you get 2.5 times more paid leave, you're much more likely to get retirement, you're much more likely to get parental leave, uh, disability insurance. I mean, these are are all real things, mm -hmm. and, and we shouldn't sort of pretend they don't exist. So let me ask you a little bit about that that issue of wages and and, uh, and compensation. There was recently uh, a study out of Stanford, Berkeley, and the Social Security Administration, and they found this is a quote. Yes, large companies used to pay more, but over the last thirty years, that's changed. They don't really pay much at all anymore. You want to. Do you feel like this used to be a feature of large companies, but, you know, as they've got more competitive and outsource things, they're really not paying very good wages anymore? Sure. So that uh, that study actually came out after we published our book. So, uh, but I have read the study, and and actually, what they what they really say is that the the wage premium has fallen. So the wage premium, they argue, was. Uh, 
you know, sort of 35 percent uh, 20 years ago. And they argue— <clears throat> You used sorry. to make 35 percent more if you worked for a big company than a little yeah, company. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And by the way, all of this is all on average, not to say that some small companies wouldn't be better and because sure. on average. Sure. And what they found is that it's fallen to 25 percent, uh, you know, more recently. So, sure, it's fallen, uh, partly because of more competition, more global competition, uh, uh, outsourcing and other factors, no question— but I wouldn't, if I'm a worker, I would not sneeze at a 25% wage premium. And, and by the way, one important thing to remember with that too, and, and, the, and the authors actually acknowledge that this could be a factor in there, as healthcare costs have gone up you know, much, much faster than the rate of inflation, mm-hmm. uh, big companies are, uh, you know, for example, 97% of companies with um, more than 200 employees were offering health care before the Affordable Care Act compared to about only half of the small companies. Huh. So as health care costs have gone up, a lot of their what used to go in the form of compensation, um, sort of the surplus compensation or benefit has shifted over to health care. Hmm. So that's to me, you know, 25 percent wage premium and health care. Uh, that's pretty good. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Robert Atkinson. He's president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation and co-author of Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business. Um, One of the other points that you mentioned that you feel like, okay, this is where big companies also do a better job than small companies is on the environmental front. Um, But we have seen huge spills in rivers or uh, the Exxon Valdez spill off the coast of Alaska how do you know that large companies are really better than small companies? Sure. I, I think one of the problems in the entire sort of debate or discussion about this, and it's, it's just sort of in, inherent to the, to the way we, uh, we report on this, uh, is, you know, if a small little uh, company that's, uh, you know, uh, coating and treating uh, metal and, and it's, it's dumping uh, the, the toxic waste uh, out their back door into a little creek, Probably they're not going to get caught, number one, because the the enforcement and inspection rates for small uh, metal platers or other firms are very, very limited. Uh, mm-hmm. they, 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 the regulators really focus their efforts on, on large firms. So they're probably not even going to get caught. But even if they got caught and it got in the papers, it, it's not going to make the New York Times or the Washington Post. It mm-hmm. might make the local newspaper if you're lucky. So there's we have sort of this biased perception that it's big firms that are the scoff laws. And, and Certainly, some of them have been. I mean, I'm like BP, you know, yeah. clearly the BP, you know, the broke Deepwater the rules. Horizon. I think, of yeah, that deep, oil Deepwater spill. Horizon. Yeah. It's terrible, terrible, and, and they deserved what they got in terms of fines and the like. So I'm not defending them, but you know, we see that and we think that's emblematic. But again, how do we know this? We reviewed a number of very good scholarly, peer-reviewed studies that were not paid for by industry, and um, and they rely in part on government reporting data from the census. But you know, just one good statistic: um, large plants, which are tend to be large firms, spend more, four times more on air pollution control per dollar of sales than small firms do. Hmm. Uh, they, so, you know, and think about the reason too for that is you know if you're a big firm. And that's not to say that some big firms aren't aren't dumb uh, and and make mistakes as they do. But by and large, if you're a big firm, you have a reputation to uphold. And and if it looks like you're a scofflaw or you're polluting, you know, consumer boycotts are very real. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, shareholder pressures are very real. So there's a lot of incentive just for that. Uh, and then secondly. Uh, as I said before, the, the odds of getting uh, inspected by an air pollution regulator or a, um, an OSHA safety worker, safety regulator, much, much higher if you're a large firm. 
Do you feel like there's any way in which small businesses are better than big businesses? Like, did you, in all your research, stumble across something where you thought, yep, small businesses kind of have an edge here? You know, it's funny. There, we, we, we listed maybe 12, 15 factors on where there, there are things to compare apples to apples on. And there were really only two that we thought were somewhat close to being a tie. Uh, one was on inequality, which, again, is that most people think big businesses are the source of inequality. When you really look at some of the data we were able to get, including some unpublished data from the Department of Labor, it suggests actually that they're about the same. Uh, their inequality is about the same in big companies and small companies. So mm-hmm. there I would say, okay, it's a tie. Uh, and the second would be on jobs. Um, that's really the ace in the hole for a lot of small business advocates. Oh, we create all these jobs. They do create a lot of jobs, but they also destroy a lot of jobs. So there's a, a good study, um, I think it's a Harvard, uh, sorry, an MIT study, uh, which we cite in the book. And it shows that uh, if you trace all firms uh, from their year of birth, that they create a lot of jobs in their first year. But then if you track all of them after that, so all the firms created in, let's say, 1998 or 2002, uh, they lose jobs every other year until year 22. You, you said, I think, that income inequality is about the same in small and big firms, right? Yes. Now, on its face, that seems wrong because, you know, to to, to – Pick a company. The CEO of Ford, I'm sure, makes, I, I would think, hundreds of times probably, many, many, many times, let's say, what somebody on an assembly line making a Ford uh, makes. Whereas in a pizza parlor, in a hair, you know, a hairdresser shop, whatever, the person who owns it doesn't make that much more than the person who works there. I mean, they may make double or triple, but we're not talking 50 times more. Sure. So part of this is about definition and how you define inequality. And, and, and one definition is what's called the 90-10 ratio. So you take the people in the 90th percentile, the top 10% of earners in any firm, and then you take the people in the 10%, the bottom 10%, and you look at how unequal they are. And it appears there that it's pretty much the same. The 90-10 ratio is the same for big firms and small firms. I haven't been able to find data on on the 199, in other words, the, the, the top 1% of earners in a firm versus everybody else. Huh, okay. My guess is if you looked at that, you would see inequality, uh, more inequality, because the big firms, you know, they, they pay their CEOs and others a lot of money, probably too much money. Right. But what we forget about that is there's a group of companies called S-Corps uh, or, 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 or other kinds of corporate forms who... Uh, are counted oftentimes as small businesses. And they there are some of those people who make a lot of money. I mean, like, you know, millions and millions of dollars a year as the CEO of a firm of 200 people. So we shouldn't forget that. Hmm. Finally, I just wonder, you know, a lot of people who advocate for small businesses say, like, Make sure you shop at small businesses and you don't just go to the big box stores or order from Amazon or whatever it is. Do you and your purchases think at all about trying to help out big businesses? <laughs> uh, I do. I am as Amazon Prime member and my wife and I just <laughs> seem like that's, that's all we do these days. But it is not out of any particular desire to help Amazon. It's out of a particular desire to not get in my car and drive in Washington traffic. Yeah. Um, no, I don't. And I think that, again, what we really argue is, you know, size neutrality. If, if there's a small company that can give me what I want and at a, at a great price or convenience or wonderful, but if a big company can do it, that's great too. 
One of the reasons why, by the way, people advocate for that is they have this view that, well, we want to keep the money locally. And, and there's no question that small companies will keep more money locally. Mm-hmm. But imagine if everybody does that. So, you know, okay, so the, the people in Milwaukee decide they're only going to shop at local business, but that means that the companies in Cleveland are going to have less business and the companies in St. Louis are going to have less business. And so they're hurt. So if everybody takes this view, we're only going to shop locally, it's a prisoner's dilemma and, and everybody essentially is hurt. So you're not, yeah, if you want to be selfish about it, say, I'm helping my community, sure. There's also a very good study we cite in there that many of these buy local campaigns, they, they actually don't really help the people they think they're helping, which are generally low. The, the notion is you're helping low and moderate income people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out you're actually helping somewhat advantaged business owners. Robert Atkinson is president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. He's co-author of the new book, Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business. Robert, thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. It's my pleasure. If you want to take a look at some of the hard numbers on big businesses versus small businesses when it comes to pay, healthcare, diversity, all that... We've got them for you at our website, innovationhub.org.